The following pre-recorded program is brought to you by Wrestling with the Inner Man. Welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man, because the first fight we face each and every day is a fight with our flesh. Do we listen to our selfish, sinful nature or to divine nature guided by the Holy Spirit? Your host, David Savage, is a product of the West Texas desert and energy industry who recently received the biggest promotion of his life, reporting directly to the top boss, God. We hope you're ready to rumble because wrestling with the inner man begins now. I love that bell. Good evening, wrestlers. Today, submitting to authority from my book. Honestly, now. Who out there in the listening audience hasn't wrestled with this one? And if you want to learn more about The Savage Path, the memoir of modern masculinity, or order a copy, just visit my website at www.thesavagepath.com. I've reduced the price of the book, the paperback, and the Kindle version while we promote the book through this series of the show. For just $4.99, less than a Whataburger, you can download the Kindle version. We are using the questions from the study guide in the back to cover each of the chapters with a different special guest who has read the book and, in many cases, have been close friends of mine for decades. My guest today is the Chief Operating Officer at Reliance Energy based out of Midland, Texas. He and I go way back to our days at A&M together more than 40 years ago. Consequently, we knew each other in those green years when we both might have wrestled with submitting to authority quite a bit in, in those days. I believe I helped him with this struggle, but I will let him mention that himself if he chooses. My dear friend and brother in Christ, Patrick Cook, welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man. What a pleasure it is to have a man of your character and standing on the show. Thanks, David. It is a pleasure to be a guest on your show. You know, as I've mentioned, I listen to your podcast during the many highway miles that I experience with my current job. I thoroughly enjoy hearing about the different perspectives of what young men struggle with and tips for powering through those struggles. Man, I certainly wish I would have had this resource back in the day when I was maturing into a man with these same struggles. Thanks for doing this. All right. I appreciate it. And thanks again for being on. So, Patrick, uh, why don't you share a little of your background traveling the world and living overseas as an expat in the oil business this is uh, important to point out up front since we do want to highlight the cultural differences you've observed with the topic of obedience. Yeah, I, I've had the opportunity to live in different parts of the world and experience the diverse cultures of my host country. Uh, I lived in Cairo, Egypt for five years, Aberdeen, Scotland for three years, returned to the, the States for about 10 years, and then more recently I was in Israel for three years. All very, very different uh, countries and cultures, but very rewarding experiences that I will cherish for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think uh, it's been a a rich experience. You know, I've written to you. I've seen some of your funny Christmas cards from Egypt, you know, where you all are dressed up as pharaohs and everything. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I know your your family and, and Sherry has enjoyed that expat life as well. But so... We're covering Chapter 4, and in Chapter 4, and in several, actually several areas of the book, I relate a few real-life stories of my own struggle with obedience. This is something that I've, you know, personally, is one of my main things, uh, is submitting to authority. Not so much today, but, you know, in my younger life. The thread throughout the book suggests that every man needs three things in his life. Number one, a will to obey, God's will. Number two, a woman to love. And number three, a work to do. 
Now, most of my time in the, the wilderness, which is the metaphor of the book, uh, when I was lost or experiencing tough consequences was when I wasn't submitting to God's will for my life. So what I want to read an excerpt from this chapter uh, during my teen years working on summer camp staff for the Boy Scouts of America. So let me just uh, pick up right here. So we had one chore each Saturday before we could take off. We were responsible for hosting the Weeblos, boys about to graduate from Cub Scouts to Boy Scouts, who would come out for the day only on Saturdays to earn a few skill awards. All of them wanted to learn rowing, and I was responsible for teaching them. The boating area of the Nueces River at Camp Fawcett was below a 30-foot bluff where we would store the boats well above the water when they were not in use. We didn't have a dock or any structures down at the water level, so we would just pull the rowboats and canoes up onto the gravel shoals for short-term breaks and meals. Each day at the end of instruction, we would recruit boys and leaders to help haul the rowboats and canoes up the bluff for overnight storage. The Saturday before the big bicentennial 4th of July weekend, the Weeblos took off, <clears throat> and I had no one to help me haul the rowboats, which were considerably heavier than the canoes, up the bluff. I was eager to go purchase a gross of bottle rockets for our planned war among staff members at a nearby low water crossing along the remote highway, so I just pulled the six rowboats up the gravel shoal as far as I could, tied them together, and left for the Rock Springs Rodeo with my waterfront companions. We had a great time at the rodeo and then conducted a spectacular bottle rocket and Roman candle war across the low water crossing, laying on our bellies on either side of the embankment. We began to see a lot of lightning off in the distance and decided to head back to camp before the approaching storm caught us. Weary from the full day of activities and excitement, we retired to our tents as the rain began to come down, at first in a light pitter-patter, but then in sideways sheets wobbling the wall tent like a bellows for a blacksmith. Gary and I fell asleep quickly, listening to the storm and hoping our tent would hold up. A few hours later, we were suddenly awakened by the flaps of our tent being thrown wide open and a very bright flashlight shining in our faces. It was Frank Hilton, the camp director, standing in the still-driving rain with a poncho on and a grave look on his face. David, he said sharply, wake up! Where are the rowboats? Confused and groggy, I mumbled something back and then realized that we had not carried them up the bluff. Not waiting for an intelligible answer, Frank shouted over the storm, Get your ponchos on and come with me. Yes, sir, we both said as we jumped up, pulling our ponchos on over our heads. We followed Frank swiftly with our flashlights to the edge of the bluff in the driving rain. Just a few hours before, we were looking down 30 feet to the water level on a hot, lazy 4th of July afternoon. Now the water was a raging torrent only a few feet from the top of the bluff. I instantly got a sick feeling in my stomach as I knew the rowboats had been washed away by the rising river. I told Frank what had happened with the Weeblos and what I was sure had happened. He was furious with me. How could you be so irresponsible? Then I'll fast forward here. Uh, uh, so then, one by one, we retrieved five of the rowboats, catching them at the low water crossing that night. The next morning, Frank was still hot and chewing me out about how irresponsible I was for not finding someone to help drag the rowboats up the bluff when I had finished with the Weeblos. He then demanded that Howard and I use one of the canoes and go down the river to try to find the missing rowboat, which must have gone by before we were able to get to the low water crossing. We were standing in a sea of mud with our ponchers on, the river still quite high and dangerous, and I had had enough of his lectures, living in a tent and risking my life for his damned rowboats. And I told him so. Frank... You pay me $30 a week to live in a tent, change clothes six times a day. We watched a man and his horse drown last night after we had been taking huge risks to catch rowboats in the middle of the night on that low water crossing, and you could just shove that last rowboat where the sun never shines. I quit. 
Frank's eyes narrowed, and he became much sterner than I had ever seen him. Now look here, David. Every time you think you are indispensable, stick your finger in a glass of water, pull it out, and see how big a hole it leaves. Now get the canoe and go get that last rowboat. I was 16 and still respected this man tremendously, and he had just called my bluff. I was either going after the rowboat, or I was going to have to hike about 180 miles to get back to San Angelo. After a long and thoughtful pause, for effect only, I said, yes, sir, I'll grab Howard, and we'll go after that last rowboat. So that's just uh, a little excerpt of uh, my example of uh, struggling with authority and submitting to it. So, Patrick, you know, as you were reading that, you know, story in the book, you know, what, what went through your mind as you read the chapter as a reader? Well, first, I had a little bit of a deja vu moment that I will get to later on. Secondly, it was a question. You know, what is it about young men, particularly at the age of 15 to 18, say, that, that make them resist or rebel against authority? You know, it's like something is triggered in their brains where now they become the smartest person on the planet. <laughs> I certainly know it happened to me. Uh, my father died when I was about 13, and uh, it was just my mother and me. And, and, boy, I know I gave her a hard time in those those years between 15 and 18. You know, in hindsight, I was lucky to have some some other male adults around that helped me get through this phase without any big issues. Well, I know you've got two sons, and I know you've uh, experienced it from both ends of that equation as well, <laughs> as I have. That is correct. <laughs> with, my, with my three sons. So in the study guide in the back of the book, I reference scripture to uh, frame a small group discussion for, for each chapter. So for chapter four, it's First Samuel 15, uh, 22, verse 22. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than the fat of rams. So, Patrick, can you recall a time when you struggled with authority, maybe at Youth Conservation Corps? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that was the deja vu moment that I mentioned earlier. I had a I had a real similar experience to yours. I was 16 years old, and I was working a summer job at the Aransas National Wildlife Refuge in a, a federal summer work program. There were about, I guess, around 50 summer interns from the surrounding small towns working with me at the refuge. The program leaders were teachers from a nearby small town. Uh, we would perform manual labor around the refuge in teams of about 10 interns. So we had these, these work teams. We did anything from hacking out underbrush on trails to with machetes to installing picnic shelters to we even did a project where we had to uh, install a pier out in the, in the water. Uh, we I can't we were performing a difficult task that my memory actually escapes me now, but the whole team was very upset by it. I can't remember the exact details, but one of the leaders was pushing us pretty dang hard and the team was getting very frustrated. Uh many of whom wanted to resist doing the task. 
I had had about enough, just like you. I finally <laughs> took the lead, and I told the leader that I was refusing to do this task. I felt that I was speaking for the entire team, and uh, anyway, uh, we had a heated discussion when he finally told me to load up in the truck and he took me back to our morning meeting place. He was planning to send me home. Uh, it was pretty embarrassing because I lived about 40 minutes away and had carpooled with other interns from my town. So I was going to have to wait for the rest of the day until they were finished and ready to go. Somehow the program head had learned of this, and he came and talked to both myself and the leader. I apologized to the leader for my insubordination and was allowed to return to my work team for the remainder of the day. You know, when I reflect back upon this, it was it's a pretty sobering experience, and I would say somewhat out of character for me, although at that age, I guess it really wasn't. So... How old were you when uh, you began to pledge the fraternity at Texas A&M? Uh, I would, that, I would have been 19, I believe. Okay. Yeah. You seem more pliable then, you know, since uh, I was the <laughs> older. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you can kind of get that out of people, David. Yeah. I found, I found him to be uh, a conformist. You know, he was, he was willing to do what needed to be done. And I was uh, one of the actives and we had, we had some uh, some bonding experiences that Patrick uh, did well through, and we, and we stayed friends all these years despite. So, well, that's yeah, correct. But you also, uh, you know, I think your your international experience is real interesting and might be interesting to our audience as well. You know, so when we visited in preparation for the show, you mentioned the the, the huge and stark contrast between, for example, the the Egyptian culture when you were living in Cairo and then the Israeli culture when you were living in Tel Aviv, uh, when it came to obedience. You know, why don't you tell us more about those two cultures and uh, how they contrasted one another? Yeah, that, that is, it was quite interesting, actually. Uh, you know, although Egypt and Israel share a common border, their cultures are very, very different, especially when it comes to obedience and authority. You know, in Egypt... Everyone defers to the highest titled or ranked person without question. In a meeting, if the highest ranked person would make a statement or a decision, it would become absolute without any questioning or discussion. You know, uh, by contrast, in Israel, titles were pretty much checked at the door for meetings. Not only was the junior person encouraged but was also expected to give their honest feedback even if it contradicted the view of the ranking person needless to say meetings in israel were often frantic and a free-for-all much different than in egyptian culture where meetings were much more formal and lower level persons were not expected to contribute much Two different ways that people would ultimately come to a decision. Both worked, but were quite different. I would say that the American culture probably falls somewhere in between these two. So really, Israel, even more more so with the uh, just equal equal footing. Do you think that uh, better decisions are made, you know, in one culture versus another? 
Yeah, you know, I would have to say, you know, and I find it even in in right now, the more input you have from more diverse sources, I think you can arrive at a better decision. And you know, one of the fears that I've had throughout my career as I advanced up the rank and into leadership roles is that my subordinates would tell me what they think I wanted to hear versus what I what they really thought. And I always tried to stress that to them and tried to tease out what they really thought so that I could take that information and then make a better decision. Right. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, like maybe in the Egyptian case, uh, what the uh, what the leader was proposing, you know, for, for whatever problem, you know, could be uh, wrong because he has inaccurate or, or incomplete information and and if you're just blindly obedient, you know, then you can have a bad result that everybody suffers the consequences of. But. Well, exactly. It wasn't that that their intent was wrong. It was just that he didn't have all the information. And, you know, in our in the energy business, that could lead to to unintended consequences and, you know, even to safety ramifications. So many times we had to to try to circumvent in, in a subtle way, uh, you know, to get around that. Right. Well, I know, you know, in my career, I've dealt with many, many different companies and cultures as well. And when you see someone who's like a kind of an overbearing boss and who's kind of telling you everything to do, especially like in a control room at one of these big plants, you know, those operators really know the equipment far, far better than their supervisors. But you know, then they just basically take their hands off and go, I'm not going to do anything until you tell me because, you know, essentially you've taken over my job and uh, you're running it. Yeah. 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 And so and those those weren't those weren't good circumstances. But uh, so what, what you know, we talked about young men, but just I think men in general, why do you think men want to rebel against authority? Man, that's a, that's a great question, and and one that frankly I don't think I have the answer to. I guess it's a way of proving to the world that you're a man by showing that you can go against authority. Proves to the world that you're own man. I, I don't know. You know, for most young men, it seems more like a phase, but could be that they they just gain experience and when to push back against authority to achieve something and when not, almost like a maturing or a rite of passage. Yeah, my my speculation, and I don't know either, is it's it's our sinful nature, right? This is this is show is called wrestling with the inner man, and it's we wrestle, you know, with our selfish, sinful nature. We want to we want to do what we want to do first. That's the first thought that always comes to our mind, and we have like that little devil on one shoulder, and then we have. You know, the Holy Spirit, if we've accepted Christ and we have that relationship and, you know, he can guide us through, you know, the still quiet voice and know this this is really what you need to do. And you've got the angel on this shoulder. But uh, I think uh, particularly when you're young, you just have a tendency to kind of fall a little bit more toward the uh, the devilish advice. <laughs> that would be correct. I know that's my own story and uh, I don't think it's unique to me, but, uh, you know, that. And then as we mature, because we experience negative consequences, we realize, and that's why the book is called The Savage Path, you know, there's a path. When you're going through the wilderness, it's a lot easier if you're hiking on the trail. You know, if you've ever done any bushwhacking, man, it's a huge difference. And you could only be 20 feet from the trail, but downhill of it where you can't see it, and you're, you could be just lost, and you don't realize how close you are. And that's kind of 
what I was saying about the three things, you know, needing to follow that will to obey and, and then, you know, life's going to be a little bit easier. You won't be out there getting uh, scratched up by the thorns and, you know, twisting your ankle on rocks and things like that. But so uh, can you share an example of when your obedience was rewarded? You know, a, a situation where you maybe you, do, you weren't sure, but you went ahead and complied and, and then uh, that, w- that was rewarded. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you it's, it's maybe a little bit unusual, but uh, I was contemplating a job move. This was probably about eight or nine years ago, and it was I was I was in my company and I was you know moving up the ladder. I was doing well, so I wasn't uh, you know I wasn't looking to move, but a headhunter came recruiting me. It was to a much smaller company from the one that I was working for, and it, therefore uh, it was a pretty big risk as this smaller company, you know, wasn't as financially sound as a larger one. There were some unknowns. It was a you know a little bit of a chaotic time in the energy uh, business, which pretty much they all are. Mm-hmm. You know, I prayed about it a lot and. Uh, I, I just, I didn't know what to do, and I kind of felt like God was telling me I should take this job. Uh, you know, it was to a smaller company. I felt like I could have a maybe a bigger influence on it, and so I went ahead and, uh, you know, even though common sense might say otherwise, I took the job. I worked that job for six months, uh, and then the smaller company was actually purchased by the larger one I had just left. They bought the whole company. <laughs> and uh, I received, as you know, some significant financial rewards. And, uh, you know, not only for myself, but for a lot of the employees there as well. So, you know, I don't know why, but it just seemed right for me to take that job. And, and so I kind of you know, obeyed, let's yeah, say. Yeah, I think and you, went for it. Well, you prayed. That's the first thing is you, you, you know, you sought, uh, you know, guidance from the Holy Spirit and then it was rewarded and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased for you. So, uh, you got any final thoughts? We're running out of time here. Uh, suggestions for young men out there listening to the program. Yes. So first of all, I, I want to thank you, David, for hosting these podcasts. I think that they're a valuable resource for young men to learn from others' mistakes or at least to go into things with their eyes wide open. Your book is great. It's an easy read, and I believe it is for all audiences, for parents to help understand what your kids are going through, for young men and women to better understand what young men are going through as they are in their maturing years. I'm happy to hear that you're you're offering a special deal, a download deal during this podcast series covering it. It's a great gift for all. Finally, uh, David, we've had many experiences during our 40-plus years of friendship, and I just want to thank you for always being there as a friend and as someone to bounce things off of. I believe that men need other trusted men to discuss issues with, etc. As they say, iron sharpens iron. And finally, I have one Bible verse that I'd like to share that I think addresses of this subject of obedience as well. It's Matthew 9, 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
to me, that's the ultimate in obedience. Super. Well, I, I really appreciate those kind words. I also want to thank our sponsor, Prism Specialties, who uh, continues to support the program. They're in the restoration business for electronics, fabrics, artworks, and even documents. So uh, you've already mentioned the Matthew verse, so I'll just close with a quick prayer. Lord, thank you for Patrick. Thank you for all those who are helping support this program. And we just ask you to be with all the young men who struggle with authority. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. AM 1070, The Answer, Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thanks for listening to Wrestling with the Inner Man. With David Savage, we believe the winners in this ring. Courageously follow God's word. Love and protect God's woman. Excel at God's work. Batters God's world and his children. For more information, reach out to David at wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. That's wrestling with the inner man at gmail.com. Tune in next time as Wrestling with the Inner Man tackles more tough topics to train up a generation of better men.